Hello? 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 Is anyone there? Is anyone anyone out there? Uh, Sorry, just having a little crisis. That's over now. Danny and I got together and watched another film that we thought was going to be bad. I actually saw a tweet recently from a guy who goes by the Twitter handle Stan the Golden Boy. Are you familiar with this Twitter character? I think he writes for like Shortlist or something. And he was saying how he realized that he no longer enjoyed watching bad films and he decided that that the experience of watching things that he you know would would put on deliberately to hate on them was like coming from this place of you know bitterness or negativity or something like that which he was didn't like about himself and that now he didn't feel that way anymore could not disagree more me too disagree entirely Lo- still love watching terrible films love that part of me my bitterness my yeah best part. no i cling to that part absolutely that, that's that's central to my whole to my whole thing and I, and I won't stop watching bad films and then telling people why i hated them and why that makes me better than the people who made them and better than most other people and smart and attractive and cool exactly that's what i'm going to keep doing forever so here's the latest incarnation of that danny and i uh, we've been uh, moaning a lot about joe wright lately after the darkest hour and so we decided to watch Pan, his Peter Pan film. It is a prequel story, kind of an origin story for Peter Pan. How did a little boy become a flying, you know, immortal boy? And uh, it's all about him in the, the in orphanage being kidnapped by sort of uh, flying pirates and stuff and taken to Neverland. And Hugh Jackman is the bad guy in it. He's, he's playing Blackbeard, who you think is going to be, you know, a, a captain. He's like a sort of Captain Hook-esque villain, but then Captain Hook is an actual character in it and he's like a cowboy or something. Yeah. Maybe should we just sort of drop in a little bit of the film? Sure. The trailer or something like that? Yeah, why not? Why not? Why not? I love you, my Peter. You are extraordinary. More than you can imagine. I promise that you will see me again in this world. This is the beginning. Or another. This is not the He's the pirate all pirates fear. Blood fear! Welcome to Neverland! Are you brave, Peter? I try to be. The name's James Hook. I'm trying to save your life, kid. Why? Let me handle this. Good fair lady, we come in peace. Yeah, so it was good. No, it was good because we were reassuringly. Uh, uh, it was proven to us that Joe Wright does suck. You know, we came in with our. <laughs> we had our prize that it was going to be bad. Yeah, it was, it was. It was bad, so it was great. It's a, a really weird idea for a film because it basically is like a Peter Pan movie, but for some reason a prequel. Like so, like as you were saying, there is like a Captain Hook figure, but it's just not Captain Hook. And they have all the, you know, the fairies and uh, the mermaids and the Native Americans, even though all played by white people. Rooney Mara's Tiger Lily, bit of whitewashing there. Yeah. Uh, I think it is worth seeing, though, mainly for Garrett Hedlund's performances. Oh, Hook, man. His, his performance as Captain Hook is fantastic. She just seems to sort of growl every line in the, in the same way, regardless of the context in which it's supposed to be said. He, he also, like, yells every line. Like, yeah. he seems like... Uh, yeah, it's 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 very odd. He sort of grimaces constantly, and the great job, kid. Yeah, well, he's like doing that. a bit of a because he can't be a pirate captain because he isn't that yet. If for some reason he's doing a kind of uh, Harrison Ford type thing, 
there's yeah, like a, there's a there's a sort of Jurassic Park esque sequence in it as well, and you get the impression that Joe Wright was trying to make a Spielbergian adventure, maybe based on Hook. I don't know. Yeah, it sucked. But yeah, it was weird. I think like Joe Wright's definitely somebody who goes through the motions of of doing particular genres of films, uh, but there's just no. It's also lifeless, you know. Like it has it has the general contours of like a children's adventure, but there's, you just feel like it's dead inside. There's nothing. <laughs> It's very hard to feel too much watching it, except the joy I felt every time Garrett Hedlund said <laughs> said a line. He was really the saving grace of the film. The deep, deep joy I felt every time he came deep on screen. Deep spiritual, um, yeah, love and joy. Also, it maybe it's not fair to like you know shit on child actors because they're just little kids, but the lead was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> having said, but having, said, having that, said that, this pan kid, he's obviously some sort of like little Lord Fauntleroy character, desperately trying to do a Cockney accent, which he cannot consistently maintain. It was like... Oh, it oh was... governor, oh, but me mum's here. Oh, but I, I don't know how to fly. Yeah. I it reminded me a bit of, like, the kid who plays Oliver, you know, in the movie. Yeah. But when, when there's no... It's like he genetically has a posh voice because we find <laughs> out he's from a rich family, but he really shouldn't have one, you know? Yeah. So it's a bit like that. Um, mean I'm posh? Yeah. 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 <laughs> who would have thought so? Come on. Just, <laughs> have, you, you. have you heard yourself? Yeah, so it is a little bit like that, except he's trying to do a kind of a Cockney accent. And I don't really know, like, why put this poor child through the trouble of having to learn an accent? Why not just cast someone who's, you know, got the right voice? Why do they have to be this uh, perfect little cherubic guy who's probably from private school, you know? Why? It, remi- it reminded me of when I used to do, um, when I was in operas when I was a child. I don't know if I've ever mentioned <laughs> this. But I was like, my school choir was, uh, did, um, like, was sometimes used as a children's chorus in, in operas. Sure. Um, and it was, it just reminded me a bit of that where like it's this sort of lavish performance, but you know, in this, because it's on the, it's, it's because it's in Covent Garden, obviously all the actors are these like little privileged, you know, mop heads, little tots. Yeah. And it was a bit like that. Yeah. yeah. You just can't, you can't have those like uh, povos in there. But the difference is, had you been cast as Pan, you would have crushed it. Well, I would have done a great accent. Yeah. And of course, when I was 10 years old, I had a <laughs> very authentic um london london accent that would have fitted in perfectly with the movie would have been very good yes anyway uh sam what is this podcast even about it's a good question danny it's probably not obvious from this conversation we've been having so far so let me make it explicit film chat is a podcast all about a top secret bioengineering project to create a plant animal hybrid capable of thriving in extreme environments A government agent called Alice is visiting the lab where this project is being conducted. It's run by Danny Moran with his sister, me. And a budding romance develops between Danny and Alice until they are attacked by a paramilitary group led by Katie Rogers, an evil doctor obsessed with immortality. Katie kills me and Alice escapes and Danny is covered in chemicals, uh, gets caught on fire and runs screaming into the swamp, presumably to die. However, he returns from the swamp as a monstrously mutated plant creature. So what I would be saying if this was a adaptation of Swamp Thing, the Wes Craven movie from 1982. It's actually just a podcast in which we talk about and review films. I'm Sam Foster, and joining me is this giant, towering, muscular creature made of vegetation. He's also quite a gifted scientist in his own way. <laughs> Dan- Danny Moran. Hello, hello. On this week's episode, we review Black Panther, a film which somewhat depressingly indulges that tired, outmoded character cliche, the cool black friend, but then negates it by making every other character also cool and black. 
We also tackle the critical darling, The Shape of Water, Gamora del Toro's 60 set fairy tale, which is currently leading the Oscar race with 13 nominations. It's a film which somewhat depressingly indulges the racist character type of the Mammy, but then doubles down on it with having an even worse black character. Shots fired. Plus, we look at the latest projects from <laughs> Melissa McCarthy, <laughs> Tiffany Haddish, and Paddington director Paul King, and detail the epic fight brewing between director of Fandom Fred, Paul Thomas Anderson, and director of Blood Rain, Yubi Bo. All of which should give me just enough time to tell you about my latest film. It's inspired by Clint Eastwood's latest masterpiece, The 1517 to Paris, but it's called The 1850 to London Waterloo. I'll be playing myself, the true hero of that story, and uh, it's going to be a heroic, heroic tale. I'm going to start with me at Richmond Station. I'm outside, not pretzel. I'm thinking to myself, should I get a coffee? And I'm like, no, just keep me up. Too much caffeine. Now I get on the train. And it really kicks into gear when I start doing the Sudoku. And not just the one at the back, like the one in the middle in the evening standard. And I complete it by the time I've got to London Waterloo. Now I get the Northern Line here. Are there any uh, flashbacks to your childhood and stuff nah, like that? Nah, real time. But, real time? Yeah, but it, it, it's real time, but it runs at like half speed to make it feature length. Have you considered... <laughs> <laughs> well, how about this? It runs at normal speed, but it's like source code. And you just have you just have to do it a bunch of times. Well, yeah, but it's like not that short a journey. So I'd have to do it like four times, maybe? Yeah, sure, you do it four times. I don't know how many times does it in source code. But rather than the train blowing up and you die, you just get to the destination and then someone's like, just give, up, give another go. Just try it again. Yeah, okay. I'll take on that note. Sorry. I know you're the script reader. But it's just a little bit of feedback uh, for me there. What do you do for a living, Sam? <laughs> Is it my job? Apparently so. So we have a bunch of our reviews up on YouTube. You can go check those out. Danny was quite diligently putting those up for a while. Yeah. That's fallen by the wayside. Well, I, well, I've never done it ever, so I can hardly <laughs> hardly complain about it. But they, I would say they don't have incredibly high number of, of views. Like They're probably not what you would describe as viral videos. Their views tend no. to number in single or double digits. <laughs> and uh, one such review is my review of It's Only the End of the World, the Javier Dolan movie that came out last year, I believe, or was it even two years ago? My disgustingly fast-moving life, where I'm just aging, heading towards death at a terrifying rate. But anyway, rather surprisingly, this got a comment from a guy who was obviously concerned that like the three other people who've listened to this review would be getting the wrong impression of the film. Which, by the way, wasn't that negative, I don't think. So it's Lewis Payne, the guy from... um, uh, Not the guy from uh, One Direction. It's Liam Payne. But there there is a Lewis, isn't there? Yeah, Lewis is another member. So they might share an account. (laughs) Don't you think? Maybe they share a YouTube... Lewis and Liam (laughs) from One Direction share a YouTube account. Yeah. They're big big Dolan fans. So... So what they said was, don't listen to this review. This is an incredible film, which is incredibly acted. The closing 10 is so intense and so life-affirming. Must have meant to say closing 10 minutes there. Well, fine. It is a well-acted film. You know, you might find it quite intense. I'm, I, mean, I didn't I'll... think it was that bad. So I don't know what this, I don't know what they're going so uh, mad I mean, about. First, that fucking guy on Twitter dragging us for about our Blade of the Immortal review. Some basement-dwelling virgin <laughs> who just discovered <laughs> politics 20 minutes ago. And now it's subsumed his entire personality because there was yeah. nothing there before. Man, now tra- this guy. Absolutely trashed that guy. Listen, you fucking trolls, okay? We don't take criticism lightly or at all. No, no. Okay? 
go and complain it to your stepdad who you hate or whatever in your pathetic little <laughs> lives. I'm conjuring a very vivid image of the people who are commenting. <laughs> have on have you considered moving, becoming a shock jock? Have you <laughs> yeah. considered becoming like James O'Brien or something? I'm gonna like throw that. a few like car horns here. Yeah, yeah. We need we need like a soundboard, but yeah. not car horns. It'd be the sounds of like screams and explosions. Yeah. This is what I'm gonna do to you, and then it's just like you know fire noises and like you know gunshots. <laughs> yeah. So from now on, nothing but just constant praise. Or some interesting question. I don't yeah. want no negativity. Well, I want to say like it's I'm a safe place. Look, I'm very happy space. to receive constructive criticism, uh, uh, but there's like a ninety percent chance that we're just going to flip about it. <laughs> but I do encourage you to send it because you don't want to. You know, it's, it's always important to learn from your mistakes. But we just haven't made any mistakes yet. Um, but do bring them up if we do make some. Uh, yeah, you can do that. Oh! 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 Friend of the show, Jules, linked us this very funny story. You may be familiar with the director, Yui Boll. He is a German director who has been christened one of the worst directors ever. He's now retired from filmmaking and has become a restaurateur, but still has a podcast called Yui Boll Raw. And he is most famous for making a series of terrible video game adaptations, Blood Rain, Name of the King, a bunch of stuff. I mean, I could read off his filmography, but it would sound like I'd be making up these titles. They're so generic sounding. Anyway... He is very angry at Paul Thomas Anderson. Apparently, he slagged him off on one of his podcasts, and uh, he believes that PTA has cryptically responded. (laughs) He tweeted, "Uh, I wouldn't have believed it, but Paul Thomas Anderson is giving us a verifiable fuck you after I criticized Phantom Fred on Yui Bowl Raw. Look at this poster. That's not a coincidence. And he tweeted a picture of the poster for Blood Rain and the poster for Phantom Fred, which are curiously quite similar. They're very similar. have a sort of... O- opaque picture of the male lead sort of head and profile and then the female lead center does that make sense just google it it's yeah yeah well there's like a sort of large uh translucent head in profile like semi-transparent and then like plussed over the top of that like a full-sized woman basically yeah yeah and they yeah so there is a similarity he continues that's it disqualified for oscars blood rain wins everything instead of phantom fred dan day lewis needs to unretire since the movie basically doesn't exist anymore living under the shadow of yui bowl hashtag oscars 2018 hashtag paul thomas anderson hashtag paul ws anderson hashtag yui bowl hashtag twitter nerds so uh yeah i mean i hope this really comes to blows he's famously he uh challenged his fiercest critics to a boxing match and beat the shit out of all of them because he's quite a muscular guy so i mean if it came to blows you might have the edge pta i don't think he's that physically fit i don't think he's a physically powerful man no that's artistically one... very powerful yeah yeah his movies are powerful <laughs> but as a human he's not that powerful I really thought you were doing a bit with your second tweet that you read out, but this is a genuine one. Yeah, I like why, the way why, why hashtag Paul W.S. Anderson? <laughs> Just because he doesn't know the difference. <laughs> Does he know which one he's talking about? No, I don't know. <laughs> Very strange. But I also have been for the director of Mortal Kombat <laughs> from 20 years ago. And that yeah. Three Musketeers uh, remake he did five years ago was clearly inspired by the Name of the King 2. <laughs> yeah, no, this is, a, this is a great story. I mean, fair play to Bol. I mean, it's a bit it's a bit hard to tell exactly how uh, tongue how in cheek his tongue is, yeah. you know, like most of the time. I guess it might, he must be semi joking, but that feels like his whole career that applies to. So it's quite difficult to say. Were the were the film critics that he was punching in the face? Could they, did they think he was joking? <laughs> were, were they like, you know, this is a pretty good gag, and you've really committed to it? I don't know. I mean, I don't know. It's hard to say. The other good bowl content from recently was when he didn't make his Kickstarter for some <laughs> shit film he wanted to make. 
And then he just yelled about the whole like Kickstarter process. He did, recorded a video where he was like, "This is fucking shit. I hate it. You're all fucking idiots. You're not giving me money for my film. Fuck you. Fuck this. You know, something like that." That's not exact quote, but yeah, it's a pretty accurate paraphrase. I desperately wanted it to be true, though. It'd be so brilliant if like Peter is so capricious that he heard this random podcast from this, which nobody probably well, he probably, he probably to. that's probably he probably listens to it every week. Probably yeah. loves it. Yeah. And he's like, what? And he like calls up the people designing the posters, like, scrap everything. <laughs> I tell you how we're going to do the poster. I'll send you the design for the poster <laughs> in five minutes. Throw your sketches away. They, had, they probably had to, like, get Dan Lewis in specially to get that shot of him side on. Yeah. yeah. That doesn't exist in the film. He's shot completely from the front. No, no, no. No profile shots in that movie. It's not part of his style. Superhero films announced Casting rumours leaking out M. Night Shyamalan's film is hated Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated Meryl Streep's Oscar tipped Matt Damon's in a viral vid Michael Bay's made a mint That's the news that's fit to print Danny, are you a Wonka man? <laughs> Just trying to find uh, an oblique way into this uh, into this story uh, Willy Wonka? Yes, Willy Wonka. I like You're... that uh, Gene Wilder movie. Sure. Did you see the Johnny Depp ah, I thought it was version rubbish. of it? Which is, yeah, everyone considers to be bad. Um, well. Yeah, I mean, I liked it as a kid, but I'm, you know, as we all are, I'm in a process of reevaluating everything I liked and deciding whether it was actually good or morally sound. Yeah. The Impa Loompas, what was that about? Right, I see. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, there's been, so there's been one good adaptation of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, one bad one. And I think there's a gap in the market now for an average version of it. <laughs> so that might be what um, they're trying to fill next. They're going to reboot it. It's going to be developed by Warner Brothers and directed by Paul King of the acclaimed uh, Paddington films. And that's about all we know about this at the moment. But I would be encouraged by that. I mean, both the Paddington movies are extremely good, absolutely delightful films. I guess we have yet to see whether Paul King can make films that are as good if he doesn't have an adorable little <laughs> velvety voiced sort of cute naive bear who just finds the best in everything yeah maybe you can only make films with bears in them because well, like Willy Wonka is a bit more of a darker character isn't he he doesn't have that same kind of worldview. it's true yeah the Roald Dahl thing has always got that sort of edge of menace to it yeah so can he bring can he bring can it can he bring the edge of menace who would you cast as Willy Wonka I feel like Gene Wilder cast a long shadow which Johnny Depp could not escape he was smothered by that shadow the same person I cast for every role Danny Tom Hardy <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah. I mean, I did love that video of him doing Bane for his dog. This release this week. <laughs> that was pretty amazing. Well, if he can do Bane for his dog, he can do Willy Wonka for audiences. I mean, I don't know if I can see Tom Hardy as anything other than Venom these days. After I watched that trailer. <laughs> <laughs> Even the trailer was so iconic, so powerful. Yeah. And I'm like, what is, I thought Tom Hardy was in this movie. And then I was like, oh my God, that was Tom Hardy. I've made some changes to my morning routine recently. Now I get up, I uh, shower, I have breakfast, I brush my teeth, and I watch the teaser trailer for Venom <laughs> every day. It's just incredible. I can't, I can't wake up without it. It was too good. Yeah. What was your favorite bit of the Venom teaser trailer? Oh, I like the bit where he's like screaming while he's getting a cat scan or something. <laughs> you like that bit? <laughs> yeah. I like the bit, I like the shot of this panning across when he's lying in the hospital bed. Not before he's screaming. <laughs> What's your favorite line from the from the teaser trailer for Venom? It's like something like... <laughs> We all have monsters or something. Shit like that, isn't it? Like, that we all have secrets. We all have some dark things that affect us. You haven't watched this trailer enough, Matt. <laughs> he says, the the opening line of the teaser is, <laughs> everybody's got their thing. 
everybody's got their thing. Yeah, and he's referring to dance moves. Everyone does their dance a bit differently. Sure. So yeah, yeah he'd be a good Willy Wonka. Who would you who would you cast? Um Well how about this? A serious suggestion. Dan Stevens? Yeah, he's pretty adorable. He's he's very I can charismatic. Just kind of see him leaping up leaping about. Yeah. I think we discussed this before, but I feel like he's a better version of that sort of Hiddleston Cumberbatch thing. Right, yeah, exactly. It's like, why isn't he getting the roles? He's much more charming and charismatic than these other cheekboned, pale Brits. And he can do a much more authentic American accent. And he's got beautiful blue eyes. And he's less, uh, I don't know. I feel like Benedict Cumberbatch would, like, do anything for a meme, you know? I think he's, like, over-media trained. Dan Stevens seems quite genuine. I feel like he there's like a scale of posh actor where you want like the the sort of scale where as it rises you want to sort of guillotine the entire class of person they belong to more <laughs> you know yeah yeah and I would say he's just a lot lower down that scale than yeah. like Hiddleston and Cumberbatch yeah and he could do eccentric he's pretty eccentric in Legion he was quite eccentric in Col- uh, was it Colossal yeah got he's a bit the yeah. best thing in Colossal <laughs> when I was watching Colossal as, and he was playing uh, Anne Hathaway's uh, boyfriend and that getting really mad because she's become a waitress or something <laughs> like that I was like is he Willy Wonka like this could yeah see him, could see him making chocolate and having a sort of um, team of dwarves do his <laughs> do you think they have, to, they have to get rid of the Oompa Loompas it's a bit problematic I don't I feel like I mean that's a good question I mean, that's a genuinely good question I feel they're, they're quite intrinsic to it aren't they aren't they yeah well in the book it's like they're and what was done in the Tim Burton movie is like there's a place called Lumperland where they were being hunted and then he just offered to let them work in this factory and they get paid in chocolate because they love chocolate so much. But it's a bit like they're this sort of like slightly uneducated... Slave class? Slave class? <laughs> How can I put this? Slave class? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a little troubling, but little I don't really troubling. know. Yeah, I don't know what the solution would be exactly. How, how would you redo it to make it okay? Um, make them the leads. <laughs> make charlie one of them yeah and it's all about them overthrowing their oppressors that way they take yeah. over the factory yeah sure it's set in um, maybe how about this yeah. it's set in umpa land and it's like much more technologically advanced than uh than our world <laughs> yeah and it follows an umpa who's becomes the king um and he has to decide whether to use umpa technology in, to cho- make chocolate in the real world <laughs> or whether to remain isolated that's a great that's a great idea for a movie yeah um, how do I say it? <laughs> Bleak way of saying this. Women in films. Are you a fan? <laughs> yes, I am, Danny. And this is an exciting news story involving two of the most revered female acting talents at the moment, Melissa McCarthy, who we all know from Bridesmaids and good movies with Paul Feig and like other shit movies her husband directs or something. Yeah, like the batting the, average is the, quite the boss. The and boss stuff like that. Films are less successful, but. She, you know, she's always, she's always the best thing in them. And Tiffany Haddish, who is having a great year following her sort of breakout turn in Girls Trip, which is a movie I keep on meaning to watch. Because yeah, I really want to watch that. It was like this sort of Bridesmaids-esque movie with an all-black cast, which grossed over $100 million. It was a sort of sleeper hit. Yeah. And the kind of perception was that, like, nobody bothered to pick up on it because it was a black movie. And then it had these massive legs at the box office and apparently she's amazing in it and Paul Thomas Anderson has said he wanted to work with Tiffany Haddish because he thought she was so great in the movie oh cool and so the prospect of having the two of them in the same movie sounds like comedic gold but in wait they're gonna team up for a drama called The Kitchen which is based on a comic series from Vertigo and it's the story of the sort of Irish mob in the 70s in the world The Kitchen is Hell's Kitchen but after sort of events, the sort of men leading the mob are locked up and the wives take over and start running things 
and develop a taste for the lifestyle and the money and all the glamour that comes with it. And it's going to be written by Andrea Berloff, who wrote Straight Outta Compton, and it's going to be her directorial debut. So it feels like kind of quite a interesting, different sounding project yeah. for everyone involved. That sounds like it could be fun. I mean, it does sound like uh, quite a broad story. Like it's kind of surprising to describe it as a gritty drama when it sounds like <laughs> a bit silly. You know, like the I- Irish gangs work for the Italian mafia, and then but like their wives are Melissa McCarthy and. Tiffany Haddish? I don't know. I mean, I really hope they're just playing broad Italian stereotypes <laughs> or broad Irish stereotypes. Either one of those would be would be very pleasing to me. But in, in my head, it's like, you know, just like a silly like gangster film. But maybe, maybe they'll make it into something that's really psychologically, you know, real yeah. and subtle. Who knows? I do think Melissa McCarthy could, uh, you know, she's just bringing everything and she could easily give her a dramatic role and she's just like knocking out of the park. But I guess... You know, she's only allowed. She's like Rebel Wilson. She's only allowed to be funny because she's a woman over forties of a certain body type, and you know there are just no leading dramatic roles for someone like her. But maybe this is the exception. And yeah, I don't know. And Tiffany Haddish seems like she's a rising star. Sorry, but um, fat women are intrinsically funny. You can't be. You can't play dramatic and be a central role. What about your entire body shape is humorous to me? <laughs> so. You're banned. You're banned from Hollywood, except except comedies. So you watch like Misery, and you're just like laughing at Kathy Bates. <laughs> like, What's she gonna do next? <laughs> She's broken his leg. <laughs> Amusing. Very yeah. Funny. Well, I find it's either scary or funny. <laughs> sorry, I also, sorry, I also let, me let me clarify. I also find, <laughs> find being overweight life. very scary. <laughs> but the one thing that it isn't is it's just serious. It's just it's not serious. It's just not dramatically. It's just not comedy. dramatically interesting. It's, but it can be terrifying. Can be very funny. It's just not straight down the middle. Well, I hope this film proves you wrong. Maybe this will, you know, change my perspective, open my mind to such things. Here's I mean, I consider myself an open-minded person. That's that's really the one line that I draw. Don't know where I'm going with that. My favorite film stars Bridget Bardo. She's the queen, but she wants to be in radio. So she starts a podcast with her friends, and the terrorists try to stop her, but she beats them in the end. All right, so The Shape of Water, the big uh, Oscar frontrunners you mentioned earlier, Guillermo del Toro's latest. He's he's one of those directors who people often describe as doing like one studio movie and then one personal film or something. Like his career was kind of divided into these more personal projects and then these more studio-focused projects. And then recently it seems almost like he's trying to find a synthesis between those two things by doing films that let him indulge his uh, love of a particular aesthetic uh, but that also have more, like, obviously commercial bent to them. So um, his uh, previous film before this one was Crimson Peak, a sort of, like, gothic ghost romance film. And now he's made The Shape of Water, which is um, another um, romance with, like, uh, horror overtones. It is set in 1962, and it follows a mute woman who works at a highly secret government laboratory, played by Sally Hawkins, who befriends a creature that has been brought into the laboratory to be studied. He's like a kind of uh, fish monster um, who's they've captured from the Amazon where he was being worshipped as a god. But he's not worshipped as a god in the United States, except by his alley walkers. Here is a clip of Sally Hawkins' co-worker, Eliza, played by Octavia Spencer, um, talking in the bathroom when she is then encounters the evil, villainous Colonel Richard Strickland, played by Michael Shannon, doing one of his gr- growliest, meanest performances. Well, you look at this. Look. 
Some of the best minds in the country peeing all over the floor in this here facility. Mm, mm, mm. There's pee freckles on the ceiling now. How'd they get it up there? Just how big a target do they need, you figure? And get enough practice, that's for sure. My Brewster, no one's ever called him a great man, but even he manages to hit the can 7% of the time. <laughs> Excuse us, sir. No, no, no. That's all right. Go ahead. You ladies seem to be chatting enjoyably. Girl talk, no doubt. Don't mind me. Incredible, incredible character Octavia Spencer has. Great character. A character oh. that she's never played before. No. A, a maid with a heart of gold. <laughs> so, um, I gotta lay my cards on the table here. Play, lay them out, Danny. Don't mince your words. I don't like this film at all. When I saw the Linfield Festival, I was like very underwhelmed. And basically, the more I think about it, the more I dislike it. And I now might actively just hate the film. I don't know. It just has grown. And I think there's something, because I feel that what the film is trying to be and what it actually is, there's a bit of a gap there for me. And also the film's re- like reaction critically, and my opinion, there's another massive gap. So I'm all out here by myself in the cold, and I don't like it. Well, that is, that is a big incentive to hate a movie, I think, is if you just dislike yeah. it a bit, and then everyone else seems to love it. That's, how I, that's kind of how I felt about The Big Sick, you know? Slightly underwhelmed, and then I read a few good reviews of it, and I was like, this movie's trash. Yeah. So my, I might, you know, I might have... Uh, What's the word? Be overhating it. Because it's not, you know, the worst movie ever made. But I do think it's very flawed and I uh, didn't like anything about it. Well, there's nothing fun <laughs> about middle-of-the-road opinions, is there? No one, yeah. wants, no one wants to hear you have a balanced view on this. So I say, go all out. For the, for the record, I didn't have that strong <laughs> negative reaction to it. But I feel, I feel like I, I, um, my, my opinion on the movie is just not that strong. So <laughs> I, it would be hard for me to sort of mount a, a powerful defense of it if, you know, Danny is tearing it to shreds. Because I think, like, a lot of the things that you dislike it for, I, I basically agree with, but I didn't have, like, a viscerally negative response to it. But go on, you know, go, pros- go. prosecute, prosecute. Well, I think it's a film that's, like, painfully low on ideas, and it's very derivative and also indulgent. And it's similar to Crimson Peak in that it's just a sort of collection of things Gomero del Toro likes, Whereas I feel, and then maybe it's just to do with the genre, and I'm more forgiving of a sort of campy horror movie than this film that's trying to pull on your heartstrings. And, you know, it's that sort of thing of if you feel being manipulated and you don't think the film's worked hard enough, it's just annoying. And that's definitely what I thought like. Why do I, what I thought like? It's definitely what I felt. That's what happened. I thought like. That's what I fucking thought like, Del Toro. <laughs> don't know what you're doing. I don't like it. And I basically was severely underwhelmed and unsurprised constantly. I knew exactly where I was going. And I don't think there's a single memorable thing about the film. And I feel like I've seen it all before in Gomorrah de Toro's own filmography. And also he's just kind of ripped off Jean-Pierre Junette a bit. And it's all just a collection of references. And I think the lack of imagination extends to even the casting. Like all the actors have played these characters before. I read one review which like lamented Michael Shannon as already becoming a parody of himself so early on in his career. But I think that's true of like a lot of the performances. And especially Octavia Spencer. It's like... I feel like Hollywood believes she is her character from The Help and will not cast her as anything other than a woman in the 60s, like, literally mopping up people's piss. Like, she's, that's she's, played she's, a, she's played a lot of maids. Ugh, and I, uh, yeah. And the movie is obviously a fairy tale, but I feel that is excuses some lazy storytelling. And 
there's probably a much longer argument to be had about when does broad fairy tale strokes just fall into cliche. And I feel this movie does that a lot. But I think the thing that sort of annoyed me the most was that fairy tales are usually set in a sort of fantastical land where the rules are all flexible. But because this is very specifically 1962 and it makes reference to like the civil rights movement, there's something a bit distasteful about having Michael Shannon with a sort of electric cattle prod baton and then like deliberately drawing a parallel to actual black people being beaten up from actual archive footage. But then the movie doesn't actually just talk about oppression at all. It's kind of this vague thing about like love and outsiders. But the way it sort of does that story is by having the broadest kind of offensive patronizing depiction of like outsiders. Like I feel like Octavia Spencer's character is like full on Tom and Jerry mrs mop territory yeah and similarly like richard jenkins as this closet gay character like he's a bit vainly like show tunes it's like come the fuck on like you know i feel that's just like bad it's just bad bad i didn't I, like this thing is probably something a bit problematic about telling a story about um embracing outsiders where one of them is like a different species it's sort of like well that's bizarre the thing like fish creature you know they experience prejudice in different ways, like homophobia and racism and ableism are different things, and they're all flanned out and then sort of compared with like a fish monster being tortured. <laughs> it's like this is not all the same stuff, and yeah, uh, I just that kind of what tipped the movie from like not working as a fairy tale into like like morally bad. I don't know, just didn't like it. Didn't yeah, like it at all. I think that the real confirmation <laughs> of um, Octavia Spencer's ca- character being sort of like close to a racist caricature is uh, her husband character who turns up a bit later yeah. on and he's just kind of glowering poor black guy who says he's constantly saying things like bring me my food woman and stuff like that and it's like yeah it, like I mean, he is he is portrayed like as barely like not quite human i think like it's really bad <laughs> I, I really thought that was terrible yeah. i mean yeah i just think on the story and it is very beautifully made and you can't deny like it's like incredibly accomplished bit of filmmaking and yeah i mean i i basically i can't disagree particularly with what you said <laughs> like i think a lot of, there's a lot of truth in that i i found that um there's a certain amount of charm in it because i don't think Guillermo del Toro it's clear that he does not have a good model of like oppression or or a good critique of it or anything like that but there is a certain amount of uh, enjoyment to be gleaned from the the love that he's pouring into it and also just his general his sort of personality which is quite a sort of likable jovial character i think there's a lot of that in the movie sure yeah. even though it's not really it's obviously not really saying anything about oppression and it definitely uses like civil rights tropes in a way that's extremely lazy but it's extremely, it's a very fluidly made film. It kind of, uh, the pace of it is very easy, moves on very quickly. It's very sort of um, pretty to look at, I think. And yeah, I don't know. I don't, because the yeah, thing yeah, is no. like, because I, di- I didn't like, I just didn't hate it. I didn't, so I don't have any kind of deep intellectual defense of the movie necessarily. But yeah, I just didn't. I mean, the things that, that enraged you, you know, <laughs> uh, just didn't bother me like that much. I think I'm just a bit more forgiving of Del Toro's foibles. Sure. Well, I feel like... Like, I like I thought it was more like Crimson Peak. Like, I thought it was quite a lot like Crimson Peak, actually. Yeah, yeah. You I know? mean, this is my sort of thing. It's like, but Crimson Peak is like a sort of out-and-out ridiculous movie, which isn't really saying anything. 
But like, but, you know, I mean, I guess the the, Os- the rapturous Oscar reception to this does suggest that people are seeing it as this like really meaningful story. Whereas I, when I watched it, I really just felt like it was another trip into the Del Toro storybook where he, you know, just wants to, it's like what he sketches and doodles in his spare time. And he just turns that into this like lovely movie, which he, you know, adores like a child and will just retweet <laughs> all the fan art like all day long because, you know, he's so proud of his creations. And I was kind of happy to wander about in that in that world, which he is obviously like in love with. And I was like, fine, you know. I mean, basically the same as Crimson Peak, which is also quite a silly film. I mean, it's like a very silly film. It's done in very broad strokes. And it's basically like both movies feel like films for children, but with like blood and sex in them, you know. Yeah. So like The Shape of Water is kind of like a kid's movie. I think I think when people say adult fairy tale, what they mean is like it's like a children's film, but she masturbates in it, you know yeah and and so it's like fine but i i mean i mean I, like adults like to watch children's films too and it basically felt like that to me you know it's like a kid's movie but because he's working on a higher um rating or whatever it's like an r-rated movie or something so he can put in you know blood and wanking blood and, and wanking yeah blood and wanking <laughs> i mean no i love the wanking i love the blood everything around <laughs> everything or else awful yeah i mean definitely like it's rapturous reception has just made me sort of think about the movie probably more so than i would have done yeah i mean as you say it sort of goes down easy but i was a bit sort of nonplussed by it and then the more people enjoy it the more i must tell them why they're wrong sam and danny both watched a film and they decided to record a few opinions on the things they saw you're gonna hear them in a moment or so there could be angry disagreements but their views are normally quite close a joint review shared between two podcast brothers do they let one another speak or do they interrupt each other the light is on the guys are in so let the chat begin start talking now about a film we both enjoyed black panther the eagerly anticipated 18th film by marvel i watched all 17 films in preparation leading up to this one yeah incredible hulk underrated we, danny and i had a, we, we had a lock-in and we watched them all you can't really appreciate black panther if you haven't watched all 17 previous films exactly so the movie sort of follows on from captain america civil war where black panther was introduced and it's kind of about the fallout of t'challa's father's death he was the king and now chadwick boseman Black Panther himself has to become king, but he has got some problems because Wakanda, there's a bit of sort of, should we expose ourselves to the world? They're a super high-tech sort of paradise, like Black Paradise, where their resources of vibranium, like the greatest metal ever, which can do anything. It's apparently. bloody good, isn't it? It's, it's the hardest good. substance ever and also seems to have endless magical properties. Yeah, sort of science and magic indistinguishable in this world. Uh, but there's talks about whether they should be sharing that with the world and like helping people. And they encounter some problems in the form of Julius Claw, uh, played by Andy Serkis. Ulysses Claw. Ulysses, yeah, one. And also Michael B. Jordan playing Killmonger, who both of which are on a mission to upset the status quo. And it's sort of a Marvel movie. <laughs> you know, one of those Marvel films. It's one of those Marvel films, yeah. Here is a clip Ulysses Claw plans to sell the vibranium to an American buyer in South Korea tomorrow night. Kroh has escaped our pursuits for almost 30 years. Not capturing him is perhaps my father's greatest regret. I wish to bring Kroh back here to stand trial. Wakanda does not need a warrior right now. We need a king. My parents were killed when he attacked. 
Not a day goes by when I do not think about what Claude took from us. From me? It's too great an opportunity to pass. Take me with you. We'll take him down together, side by side. They need you here, protecting the border. Then I ask, do you kill him where he stands? Or you bring him back to us? You have my word. I will bring him back. So you, we enjoyed this one. We enjoyed this. I, th I think I think it fits into Marvel's general scheme, which seems to be to uh, they have to work a little bit harder to break even every time. You know, yeah. Like they have a sort of formula to, that they make these movies to, and they have to change enough with each new film that it will be hailed as this like changing and shake up of the whole universe and it's like they've never done this before it's going to be completely different to all the other movies and then you watch it and it's kind of not at all that different <laughs> to the other ones but you still enjoyed it you know and you come away not feeling like too cheated and i think i think black panther is kind of like that yeah um and the progressiveness of the of, the, of its sort of all black cast in this massive budget superhero film is very noticeable and does feel very refreshing and like constantly throughout the movie i was th thinking like have not have not seen this before yeah and i think the the key thing the key key to its success is its utopian premise because it's set in this african country which is super technologically advanced and it's kind of like the most powerful nation on earth but it's hidden from the eyes of the rest of the world it's this utopian vision of an africa which has not been not only not been colonized but like flourished and is doing better in fact than other yeah than other nations when that ukip guy says we shouldn't send aid to bongo bongo land he meant wakanda doesn't need any aid it's, the, <laughs> it's doing really good well i, I kind of liked said. actually that's one of the things that they mentioned in in, in the in the sort of setup phase of the film is that they mentioned like they don't receive um any aid and uh i mean there's a lot of arguments around um around aid and 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 that kind of thing but like one of the things that it is seen as is a way for like western countries to control the countries that they give aid to because strings are attached to basically given to you and so I think because part of the whole superhero thing is this, is like a power fantasy. So the movie immediately has a great success in the fact that it is this fantasy which is investing power in a good place. And it's like it's putting power somewhere where you want it to be. Yeah. And it's not just like giving power to somebody who doesn't really need it. And there's something like intrinsically less interesting about movies about like rich billionaires becoming super powerful. You know, yeah. <laughs> they're already powerful. But if it's like an African country, it's like the country is the superhero in a way you know yeah, yeah like its superpower is like resisting colonization and being super advanced and 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 that kind of thing and one of the like two white characters in the movie um the other one other than the villain is uh martin freeman who was in captain america civil war and is reprising his role here as a cia agent called agent ross and one of the things like he's kind of a good guy in the film but one of the things that was quite noticeable is that his interactions with the other characters it felt different to most other superheroes because they have no respect for U.S. power. Yeah. And that's genuinely different, you know? Absolutely. Like, part of Captain America's Civil War is all about them having to deal with, like, you know, international bodies and powers and stuff, and, like, which is quite, like, U.S.-centric, and they work within the U.S. government. And a lot of, like, Captain America stuff is about how he, like, relates to the institutions of the, of the U.S. state and stuff. But it was still kind of cool having these guys encounter, like, a representative of the U.S. government, which they do not need to please or even think about or, like, care about displeasing <laughs> in any way. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, I mean, that's I guess that's quite a small thing, but it's just, like, the movie is full of these little things that make, that are just, like, nice to see done. Absolutely. It also feels the most... Uh 
like it's a Ryan Coogler movie. Like he directed Creed and Fruitvale Station, and it feels very him. And I feel like he has imbued the Marvel thing with his personality more so than even like Taika Waititi. I guess like that's the previous Marvel film, which also felt like the most like a director's sensibility. But unlike that film where, which is very like kind of funny but very flippant. Yeah, Thor like, Ragnarok. Thor Ragnarok. To. Yeah. Um, like he genuinely sort of cares and there's a very sincere and like overt like passion to like the way it's been made and uh, that's very very winning and it's a really good ensemble film where all the characters pop like a comparison in the Marvel universe would be like the Thor movies which also have a sort of like society where like science and magic are the same thing and they try to surround Thor with like this collection of characters and they all sucked so much so that they were all murdered or left out in the third movie no one no no one cares no one gave a shit but in this one, they're all really good. Like, Letitia Wright as his um, sister is amazing, and Lupita Nyong'o. And I think it's, like, above-average writing on Ryan Coogler's part and his screenwriting fellow, who I've forgotten the name of. I'll drop it in now. Joe Roberts Cole. That guy. And uh, also just they're incredibly charismatic actors. And it feels like maybe one of the upsides of racism in Hollywood is that you can just cast the 20 best black actors in the world in the same movie and they're all available yeah <laughs> yeah yeah and uh another common problem with marvel movies is that the villains suck but michael b jordan was a really good villain and with a very relatable point of view and the movie it's not like the most political film in the world but it has a bit of bite to it yeah and... it has it has it has a lot of touches in it they obviously have a few things they want to say and you can't rock the boat too much you can't make a film that's that political it's got a budget of 200 million yeah but it has got little bits sort of snuck in there. Yeah, and I'd say the most memorable line is Michael B. Jordan's last line, which has the most political bite to it. Michael B. Jordan's last line was almost too real. It yeah. kind of was like, his the final line that he delivers in the film was like, had enough edge to it that I was a bit like, okay. Wow. <laughs> well, it was like a line from a different version of this movie that really challenges you. Yeah. And the movie doesn't really do that. It's very, it's like very, very easy to watch. And there's nothing for anybody to get too upset about in it, I don't think. But that, when the, his last line, I was a bit like, okay, you could kind <laughs> of, that's when you sense, it's, it's a bit of a similar thing with Take Away TT, where you sense these directors pushing a little bit against the boundaries that they've been set and you can just see them testing them a little bit you know yeah. um but I, I think like part of the success of his character and he he is, does a great his performance in it is really brilliant um but it's does a very good job of tying in because he has this like poor urban upbringing where he is like the victim of oppression and racism in america basically and it has does a good job of tying that in with their version of this black society where that doesn't exist um, where they're like totally, you know, uncolonized and stuff. So there's an inherent undertone of kind of social commentary just to the setup that they do. Yeah. I also think Chadwick Boseman, his character is quite a hard one to play and he doesn't, doesn't really have like a shtick. He's not like wisecracking and he doesn't really have a massive arc in that he is quite righteous and forward thinking from the get go. But he kind of plays it kind of brilliantly, I think. He's, like, very sincere and, like, he does a lot of, like, good conflicted acting constantly, even when he's just... He's got, very, he's got a lot of poise. Yeah. A lot of dignity. Yeah. yeah, he just sort of can hold the screen. He's when when he's in the Black Panther costume and you can't see his face, I felt like they were constantly just... Sometimes for no reason they would have him kind of remove the mask just so you could see his face again because it's just not as good, you know, when you yeah. can't sort of... Don't have the expressiveness of the acting. Yeah. I mean, there are some problems with it, like... It's almost like all Marvel movies have slightly, like, wonky plotting... And the CGI is just, like, not good. Yeah, some of the plotting and the action sequences are pretty indifferent. 
Yeah, that's some of the the like worst of the of Marvel's recent output. I think in some ways, like some of the CGI is really particularly bad. And every time he puts the costume on, he basically just becomes a fully CGI person leaping about, and it doesn't look very convincing. It didn't look good when the Matrix Reloaded did it in two thousand and four, whatever. And the intervening space of time, they have not perfected that particular bit of technology. Yeah, but it, yeah, but it, it's not. I mean, I think Marvel. It feels like their focus is not on that, it, which is almost like an interesting choice that they will routinely sacrifice like interesting action sequences in their movies <laughs> to to do other things. Um, and I think that's proven to be quite a canny decision in some ways. And this movie is a similar kind of thing. And if, I'm, I guess, whatever resources that they would have poured into doing better fight scenes have been better used elsewhere. Um, and it still didn't feel like too much of an issue. But it's basically like that feeling you get when you're watching blockbusters and all the CGI is exploding at the end and you're a bit like, well, this is doing nothing for me. It just feels like they have to put this in because it's, the, you know, yeah. you just have to do it. But it's not at all interesting. I think that's like particularly true for this film. But all the scenes of dialogue or all the ensemble sequence the scenes and stuff um, are great. And it's it's a stunning looking film as well. Like the costumes are absolutely spectacular. Whoever was doing the design on it has knocked it out of the park because everything and everyone looks amazing throughout. Yeah. 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 I'd say it's like a top tier Marvel movie. It is definitely. It's definitely a top tier Marvel movie. And also it is it is genuinely like an important film, I feel. I feel like as a white middle class <laughs> man. But like it's sort of I guess there's a comparison made with like Wonder Woman, which was also like a kind of a bit of a first. And even though I think we like both like acknowledged its importance i didn't really grasp it until i've heard like female friends talk about it and it's like you know movies are important well it's and the you it, cannot that, yeah. underestimate the power of seeing yourself represented which, represented on film like it's a big deal and you know well you know i hope it spawns you know a, a sea change in hollywood i don't know i hope it's a massive fucking hit and they like hollywood rushes to make a billion that for futurism movies that'd be like insane yeah that'd be great I think that the thing, the strand that connects those two films maybe is that they're both representations, but they're not just like seeing yourself represented on screen, but they're seeing yourself represented in a way that doesn't relate to the like dominant thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. So like it's this representation of black superheroes that does not like relate to whiteness. And Wonder Woman is the same thing where as it, she's like a female superhero, but she's not like defined by men because she's from this like, you know, yeah, yeah. all uh, female island or whatever. Um, so I think that, yeah, that's an additional... Um, refreshing thing about them yeah absolutely i hope hope it does like open doors and we see we see more movies like it it's probably going to make all the money in the world so but what i really want to see is the spin-off about martin freeman's character (laughs) whole film about him just hanging out at home agent ross's adventures yes agent ross's adventures (laughs) flashback to him in the 70s flashback flash forward to him in the in the the 20s 70s when he's like he's got a robo body and stuff yes yes Yes, yes, that would be excellent. When Zach heard something that changed his life, what he listened to? Film Chat. When John Cusack made a mixtape for his future wife, what did she listen to? Film Chat. And when Michael Madsen cut a guy's ear off, what was he dancing to? Film Chat. And when Tim Robbins showed Shawshank that he had enough, which record did he choose? Yeah, 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 yeah. So the BAFTAs are on Sunday. We're recording this on Thursday. Thursday. We're recording this on Thursday. And so depending on when we turn this around, they might have happened already. Don't know. But let's, let's have some crazy BAFTA predictions. 
Go. Joanna Lumley is going to make a joke about sexual harassment <laughs> in Hollywood. <laughs> That's my first prediction. That's a crazy prediction. Prediction number two. Darkest Hour win best British film. Do you think so? Yeah. Because this is such a fucking loving for that kind of shit. Yeah. Prediction three. Daniel Kalu will win best uh, British rising star, but it'll be snubbed in the actors category. The actual main one. Because it's like vote for the public. He's, it'll, he's the home favorite, right? He's got to win. That's not much of a prediction. Prediction four. Timothy Chalamet will die. (laughs) (laughs) Mid-ceremony. I don't want that to happen. I'm a big fan. But but I do predict it. But I do predict it. I hope to God it doesn't come through. (laughs) Uh, I'm not going to improv. No, no, those are good. Those are are all very reliable. What about you? What are are your predictions? I don't know. I have no no thoughts about it. I'll just sit there and watch it, and I'll have thoughts at the time. Maybe Stephen Fry is going to crash it and being like, I I regret saying no. I regret saying no. Let me do it. Let me do it. I've written 8,000 puns. Here's another prediction. Jamie Dornan will present an award, and Joanna Lumley will make her some sort of kinky BDSM joke at his expense. You know what they should do? They he was have... all tied up, but apparently he's now free. And then all he'll come on. That would be good. Yeah. And that's also a good joke that it could have been. Thanks. Um, I think how they should do it, though, is that he should be presenting the award uh, in some kind of elaborate leather get-up. <laughs> a gimp suit. <laughs> yeah. He would be presenting the award in a gimp suit. <laughs> and then uh, when Joanna Lonley comes on, she um, they do a dance or something. And then she, like, tears a bit of it off. And it just reveals his nipple. <laughs> For like, Janet Jackson. like Janet Jackson in the Super Bowl. <laughs> I'm but... referencing Janet Jackson in the 2004 <laughs> Super Bowl. Well, everyone has been talking about that recently because of Justin Timberlake. Oh, the ties turn on JT, hasn't it? People don't like him anymore. Well, that's why he's gone to the woods. He's had to go to the woods. He had to go to the woods. Hide out there. He's become the a man of the woods. Yeah, he had to go there. Uh, he's he was when does he was the last relevant? He probably saw a cabin in the woods and he was like, maybe man in the woods. Maybe that could be my new thing. You know, which genre will he reappropriate next? I mean, um, Bowie did it, but it was cool when he did it. Man in the disco. <laughs> my, my disco, my techno album. Man in the discotheque. <laughs> anyway. Man on board a ship for my sea shanty album. <laughs> anyway, anyway, so we'll see you next time. Next week, we'll, we'll be reviewing Lady Bird. The, that's the last Oscar movie we have to watch. Yes, and then, and then we can, we can complete our Oscar pre- say uh, which views. one was the best and which one was the worst. And also something else, probably. It's probably something else. Probably something else. Maybe not. Maybe just that. Maybe just that. Maybe not talk about anything else except for Lady Bird. Maybe it'll really spark a lot of conversation. You never know. But you'll have to listen to find out. See you then. See you then. Bye. So yes, Uber Ball, and uh, that is the last update. We have only four days to do with the Rampage campaign. And that was my third campaign now uh, after Postal 2 failed, after Indiegogo for Rampage 3 failed, and now Kickstarter failed too. And uh, basically my message is, fuck yourself. Because that is so fucking absurd what retarded amateur idiots 
collecting money on that absurd website, you know? We get approached by people like Kickstarter, do it, do it, and you have hundreds, thousands of people contacting you to make a fast dime to say, I can push your uh, campaign and I get 10% of whatever you collect, and it's all fucking bullshit, and I will never do it in my life again. For me, crowdfunding is absolutely dead. Goodbye. And it looks like nobody gives a shit about Rampage 3, so maybe I shouldn't do it then. I have enough go uh, money to play golf till I'm dead. And I was willing to do all of this as the campaigns for to make any money. I want to do Rampage 3 because it is an important movie. But it looks like you're easier giving $600,000 if you make a movie about some retarded wizard in the forest. Uh, or for another, uh, whatever, Marvel Avengers bullshit dirt. Uh, so goodbye and goodbye Hollywood.